0: Father God, thank you for this chance to come into your presence at the, the table of memorial, of remembering. It's a place where we we remember a lot of things. We remember well we remember our failings of the last week. We remember our, our sinfulness, but we also remember your grace and remember the price you paid for us. And we remember we're loved and we're cared for. <laughs> we remember we have a Savior who is living and active, not a Savior who is dead in a grave that we memorialize, but a a Savior who is alive and well and we worship. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this chance to come to this table and to remember the body and the blood of Christ Jesus. And remember that that body and that blood are still available to us even today. Thank you, in Jesus' name we pray amen where do you like to put broken things uh, in your life sometimes things break and we say I'm going to discard that right away it goes in the trash can and we get rid of it but a lot of times I suspect you have things that you break and you think oh I'll repair that I'll get back to that that can be fixed and so where do you put those things the things you think that you might get to someday to fix, but you just haven't fixed them yet, right? So, so I, I don't know if you have a place like that. So in my garage, I have, I have uh, one of Dreama's uh, relative's rocking chair that uh, one time in the middle of night, rocking Atticus, some really large guy cracked it. You know, I don't know what was happening with that. But uh, anyway, uh, I've put that up there. That can be repaired. needs to be fixed. It's an heirloom, right? So it hangs on the side of my garage up high. It's a reminder, but I always hope my wife looks past it most of the time, right? I think she does. I'm not sure she knows it's broken yet. Today she'll find out. Anyway, those things. Where do you put things that are broken and discarded? You know, we a lot of times push things like that off to the margins. If you were to go out and to drive down uh, the interstate today on your way home, you'll think about this. Now, we normally don't spend a lot of time looking at the things that are on the right side in that runoff lane in the interstate. But what's over there? Broken tires, broken glass, uh, sometimes parts of cars, broken fenders. You see a lot of broken things that have gotten pushed out of the main road where we all need to be and pushed to the side. It's just what happens with broken things. They're discarded. They're pushed to the edge. What does society do with broken people? How do we do with people who are broken? In truth, a lot of broken people still get pushed to the edge, don't they? They kind of live under underpasses in our cities, and they they kind of get moved to the sides. Out of the way of people who are going about doing their life every day, just kind of out of sight, out of mind. That was the case in Jesus' day for sure. There was a broken place. It was called Samaria. It had once been Rich and powerful when the northern kingdom had had been there, the Israelites had lived in that area, but Assyria had hauled away into slavery and captivity every single person who had had any strength in their body left that could be used as a slave or could, could be used to recolonize some other spot. All the things Assyria did. Who did they leave behind? They left behind the broken, the sick. The injured, that's who they left behind, discarded them to the side. One of the reasons that the uh, people in the southern kingdom of Israel, in the land of Judah, were so frustrated is that those broken people <clears throat> that were in the north, they were Israelites, but, but what they tended to do was when new people came into that region that weren't Israelites, they would intermarry with them, uh, they would start families with them, and so they became to the southern kingdom, to the people of Judah, they became kind of a pariah. They weren't pure in their lineage, they were broken, they were damaged, and they really looked down on them. They really thought poorly of the people of Samaria. Now I tell you all that because I want to talk to you about a passage from Luke 17 where Jesus intentionally goes to the edge. He intentionally goes to where the broken people are. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. And it starts with these words. It says, now, on his way to Jerusalem. Now, here's what's so fascinating about those words. There was a much faster route to Jerusalem. There was a much easier route to Jerusalem. One of the things that scholars struggle with when they look at these passages, they think, well, why would Jesus be over here on this border town on the fringe of Samaria and Galilee? Why would he be way over there when his path is supposed to be going to Jerusalem? And there really is a good, plausible answer for that, and that is that Jesus is taking a long cut on purpose. Now, I get accused of this anytime I make a wrong turn, in my family, my, my wife, my children, my grandchildren even now will say, Grandpa's taking a long cut. It means he got lost. But that's not the case for Jesus. He, he's, he's not taking it because he got lost. He's taking it on purpose. There are people that he wants to see. So he is on this path to Jerusalem that is rather circuitous. It goes all over the place. It's not a straight line. And as he's on that path, there's a place in Samaria that I think Jesus has wanted to go for some time. There are some people there who are important to him. Something you might not know about that region is that even in Samaria, they had a problem with what do you do with people who are broken physically with disease? And what they did was they would quarantine people that were diseased off to the side, especially people who had skin diseases. And so there was, on the border between Galilee and the, uh, the region to the south there, uh, there was a place that was, was known uh, to be a place where a lot of people that had leprosy colonized, they lived together in that space, a place that most people would have avoided, but not Jesus. <laughs> He was heading that way on purpose. So it says he was on his way to Jerusalem and he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. Now, I want to start by making sure we understand something about leprosy. Today, we know leprosy as a kind of disease that has big plotches on our skin. It really is a disease that That attacks the nerves more than it is one that disfigures us. But what happens is people who have leprosy lose feeling in their hands, in their feet, uh, in their body. And then when they get injured, uh, they don't know that they're injured or they don't realize it until they've already had uh, the ability for more infection or disease to come in. Today, maybe not such a big issue. It's something that now, finally, we we can cure with a series of antibiotic, antibiotic treatments, but not the case in Jesus' day. And if you were to be walking on a long journey, and you can't feel your feet, and you blister or you tear your skin, and you're walking on streets that, well, there wasn't good sanitation, you could imagine how quickly you could become infected. And there was no antibiotic treatment then. You were in trouble. And so uh, real leprosy was a real problem. But how did they distinguish it then? They would have blood tests to know. So what you should also know about leprosy in the day of Jesus is that people who had almost any kind of skin disease had to be tested for leprosy and go before a priest to say, hey, uh, is this leprosy or not? And one of the tests was, are you healing? Are you healing? Is, is there healing from it? So let's say that you had terrible acne. That's a pretty rare case, but let's say it was, it was horrible acne, and, and, and you know it was something that you had, and they said, hey... We're not too sure about that. That looks pretty iffy. And so they sent you off to this place of quarantine, but by the grace of God, aging happens, you know, your body stops producing all the oil a little bit, and your acne goes away. What would you do? You'd go to the priest, because the priest was kind of like the doctor, the infectious disease controller, and the priest would say, you know what? Wow, you're healed. Your skin disease seems to have let up. You're, You're healed. You can come back and be a part of the regular society. You don't live on the margins anymore. So because that phenomenon happened, when people had leprosy, it wasn't uncommon for them, especially in the beginning, to try to go to the priest pretty frequently. Why? Because they didn't want to live in isolation. They wanted to be with their families and their friends and their neighbors. They didn't want to live in isolation. And so you would have gone to see the priest frequently. And people who were sometimes quarantined did find healing and get to go out of those places. Their body healed. But if you had real authentic leprosy without really advanced antibiotic treatments that we have today, you weren't going to get well from it. It was incurable at that time. And so you would have gone to the priest the first time hoping for good news, and the priest said, say, well, yeah, I see that spot doesn't look as bad, but there's other spots. I'm sorry, you, you have to go back to the leper colony. And maybe you had a really good run, and you didn't get injured anywhere, and you were feeling pretty good a couple years later, and you thought, maybe I can go now. And you go back to the priest again, and, no, I'm sorry. I think you still have leprosy. And you eventually would get so frustrated that you wouldn't go to the priest anymore. You wouldn't go anymore because you'd just accept, this is my lot in life. Well, there were 10 men who were lepers. and They'd probably been lepers for a long time. And they made the decision to come to Jesus when they heard he was passing through. It's interesting, why only 10? There were no doubt hundreds of people who had leprosy there. One thing is, traveling was a dangerous proposition for lepers. It really was. You risk injury, and injury prompted the likelihood that you would get an infection, and an infection increased the likelihood you would lose a limb or a finger or a hand or a toe or whatever. So it was a risky proposition. So some people thought, I'm not going to take the risk. I'm not going to take the risk to go do this. Others who had been isolated for so long probably thought, it doesn't matter, there's no hope, there's no cure. And their disbelief that their circumstance could change kept them from coming to Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus could do what they were hoping he could do. Only 10 came. So the 10 people, these 10 lepers, uh, they come to Jesus, and it says that, Um, They met him, and they stood at a distance, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Isn't it interesting they didn't cry out, heal us? Isn't that fascinating? They didn't say, hey, please make us well. They asked for mercy. They asked for pity. It was a way of, of kind of acknowledging something they believed to be about Jesus, you know, If there's a God in the universe that's in charge of things, uh, we lay out our petition before you. This isn't fair what's happened to us. (laughs) Have mercy. The sentence of leprosy is too severe. It's too horrible a thing to deal with. Uh, Have mercy on us. Free us from this prison of sickness. They stood at a distance because they had to. That was the law. They had stood at the distance for so many things. Realized that some of these people had been husbands, fathers, or even grandfathers, that they had wives and children that they were never allowed to embrace, never allowed to hold. Whenever they saw each other, and they did see each other, they would have to stand at a distance, something between 50 and 100 feet usually, and they would talk. A family could bring you food, but they would have set it a spot. They would leave, and then you would go get it. It was a very disconnected kind of life. Jesus have pity on us. Now, when Jesus saw them, he does something that's very powerful. He sees them, and he has pity on them. He has mercy towards them. There's a principle I want you to understand as we kind of move forward this morning. The first one is this. Actually, three. Here's the first one. God values the least of these. God values the least. He values people that other people don't value. He values the least. We see it happen over and over and over, whether it's a little child that he allows to come and sit on his lap, or or it's a person who has leprosy, but he touches them. He values the people that are discarded, that are pushed to the side, the people who are broken and they need healing, they need repair. Jesus values that. He appreciates that. These 10 lepers were outcasts of society. Beyond just having leprosy, uh, we will quickly see that at least one of them was also a Samaritan, doubly cursed, if you will, by the problems that he had. The lowest of the low, a man with no status, no prospects. Society said he was an untouchable. But Jesus treasured broken people. Jesus treasures broken people. If that's your circumstance today and you come here with a sense of brokenness, you're in the right place. Jesus cares for the broken, he cares for the discarded, he cares for those that the rest of the society has kind of given up on, but he still says there's value in us. And so Jesus sees them, he has mercy on them, but what he says to them is not you're healed, he says, go and show yourself to the priest. Now it's important to remember what we said, this is an experience many of them have had before. And it's never turned out good. It always turns out bad. So what Jesus asked them to do was to face one of their worst fears. I hate going to the priest. It never goes right for me. That guy just doesn't like me. I'm telling you. right? And Jesus says, go. You're going to have to go deal with this guy. You're going to have to go to the priest. Now that's unique because we know Jesus could have just said, you're healed. It's all good. But that's not what he said. It's kind of like an Old Testament story about a man named Naaman who had leprosy, who goes to see the prophet. And the prophet says, Listen, here's where you need to go. You need to go dunk yourself in the Jordan River and, and seven times, and then you're going to be healed. And first, he doesn't want to do it, but he finally goes. And after Naaman dunks and he does what he's told to do, when he comes up, of course, the last time he's healed, he does the thing that he's supposed to do. This is a similar story. Here we have this occasion where Jesus says, Go, go show yourself to the priest. Now here's the problem, right? Like the guys are standing there and they're looking at their hands and they see these wounds on their hands, right? And they see the struggles that they're happening. Uh, And they're like, whoa, what am I going to show them? Like I look worse this time than the last time I went there. Uh, What is going to happen when I go this time? And I don't know which one of them took the first step. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But it does tell us this. As they went... They were cleansed. There's a second principle I want you to gather from this, and that is that God honors faith. It took a certain amount of belief in Jesus to take that step toward the priest. I really don't know if they had a lot of faith or if they had very little faith or if they had desperate faith, but I know this. They had enough faith. They had enough faith to take Jesus at his word. Do you? Do you have enough faith to take Jesus at his word? To do the thing he asked you to do? They had enough faith. And so they began to walk in the direction of the priest. Now I love what happens next in the story. Because it says, as they went, they were cleansed. So as they're walking along, picture this, right? Leprosy is a disease that has eliminated the ability to feel in their feet, in their hands. And as they're walking, perhaps barefoot or perhaps they had sandals, whatever they have, suddenly with a step you begin to feel a sensation you've never felt before. Maybe it's the warmth of the soil or it's the, a pebble that you stepped on you never felt before. They begin to have sensation in their feet that they have not had since they were healthy. And for some, maybe since they were children. Every step, their body is coming alive. Every step, things are beginning to heal and to change. They can suddenly feel the heat and the warmth of the sun. They can feel the gentle breeze on their face. And they recognize I'm changing. As they went, they were being healed. It was a powerful moment. All of a sudden, one of them has this kind of epiphany. One of them, verse 15 says, when he saw he was healed, he came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. I mean, he's overwhelmed with joy. He has just gotten a second chance at life. I mean, if he was a married man, he's going to go back to his wife and his kids. Whatever his circumstance was, he's back. He's back. And he is overwhelmed. He can't help but thank Jesus. He throws himself at the very feet of Jesus. He wraps his arms around him, saying, thank you. Now, Jesus, seeing the man, has a really interesting response. He said, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? It's an interesting statement that Jesus makes here. I, I, I want you to understand, I'm not sure where the other nine went. I, I'm not sure where they went or what they had, but I do think I understand something about what they were thinking. They had made an error that we, we make, I make sometimes. It's an error that says, if I can fix this one thing in my life, everything will be Okay. If I had won that lottery last week, everything would be okay, we think. Or if I could just get this one piece back, if I could just get my marriage fixed, everything else would be okay. Or if I could just get that, that, that investment to go through. We, we have a way of thinking that one thing is all we need to worry about. And for nine of those people, Jesus represented a one-time offer, He'll just do this one thing for me and my life will be good. All I need from Jesus is healing. And they got it. They'd gotten the one thing from Jesus that they wanted. But I believe the man who came back to Jesus understood Jesus had more to give. That he couldn't, he didn't have to just end at healing a body. There was so much more. I believe that in part because of the way Jesus responds to him. Jesus then said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The others had healing, but this last one had faith and healing. He had found his Savior, his Master, his Lord. His healing wasn't just temporary. Because don't miss this. All 10 of those lepers still died. Maybe not from leprosy, but from something. But one of them lives forever. He came back and he showed gratitude, thankfulness. And I think God cherishes our gratitude. Even more than our measure of faith, God cherishes times that we come back and say, thanks. I really appreciate what you have done for me. Thankfulness matters to God. We're told over and over how important it is to be thankful. That it's, it, it's important for us to give thanksgiving on all occasions. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you In Christ Jesus. God cherishes gratitude. But I like something else that happened that Jesus himself said. Luke chapter 6 verse 35 and 36 says this. Jesus said, love your enemies, be good to them, lend without expecting to be paid back. Then you will get a great reward and you will be the true children of God in heaven. And he is good even to people who are unthankful and cruel. (laughs) He is good even to people who lack gratitude. He's still kind. He was kind to the other nine. He was. He still healed them. There's something good about coming to Jesus. I want you to hear that. (laughs) Even in our ingratitude or our unthankfulness, he is still kind. But in our thankfulness, God does great things. He inhabits the praises of his people. He is present in our thanksgiving. He makes all the difference. Jesus had done something incredible for those men. They were swept up in a current that was taking them towards death. A sad, lonely kind of death. But he had reached out, literally scooping them up, changing their destiny, saving them from a a kind of destruction that seemed inevitable. It's not unlike an event that occurred on July 9th in 1960. In the summer of 1960, uh, Deanne uh, Woodward and her brother Roger had gone on a boat ride with their neighbor, uh, Jim Honeycutt on the Niagara River. Think, this is the part of the river way back and above Niagara Falls. They had a, a boat with a small motor on it, and they were having a great day on a warm summer's day. They were having the time of their life when their engines stopped working, but no worries, they still had oars to row. And so as they were rowing along, they... Inadvertently found themselves caught in the current of the Niagara River, and as the river heads towards the falls, the current gets stronger and stronger. And there is a great rapids before Niagara Falls. If you've ever been there, you've seen it. And as they recognized they weren't going to be able to escape the current of the river, Uh, Deanna and Roger put their life jackets on. Uh, Jim did his best job. Try to get that boat to the side of the river, but as they got into those fast rapids, they they hit the first boulder, and immediately the boat capsized, and Deanna was pushed to one side, Roger and Jim to the other. Now, Deanna was making her best efforts to get out of that river, but the current was so strong, even as she got close to the sides, she couldn't get out. It just kept ripping her back into the water. And none of them were unaware of what was in front of them. Niagara Falls. Jim Honeycutt wrapped young Roger in his arms to try to shield the boy from the bangs and crashes in the boulders that were going to happen. And he did shield Roger from a lot of heavy thuds, Along the way, onlookers watched the whole scenario as it was unfolding in horror. And this was a tragic day. Deanna, who was a teenager, she made her way towards the side, and at the last second, about 25 feet from going over the falls, an onlooker was able to reach out and grab hold of her arm, holding on to a railing, and then another person got her, and they hoisted her to safety. About the same distance from the fall, Jim Honeycutt got knocked unconscious and probably was killed by a boulder that he hit. And Roger was swept over the falls at Niagara. Everyone felt Completely helpless. (laughs) What do you do in the face of a certain disaster? Don't miss this. All of us facing disaster are reaching out our hands asking for help. We want help. For some, we haven't had to face that moment yet. And for others, you have. And you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) What do you do when you're facing certain disaster? You cry out those words, oh, Lord, help me. God, save me. How incredible for Deanna that there were two people there who were able to reach out their hands, grab her and pull her to safety. Christian brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something about the world we live in. There are a lot of people who are being swept towards the abyss at this very moment. Some of them are in your family, some of them are your friends, some of them are your neighbors, some of them are your co-workers, and they are caught in a current that will end in a, in a destruction at the abyss. And they may not even realize the danger that they're in yet, but just like that boat that started not in much danger, they will find their way into perilous danger And friends, we have the opportunity to join Christ in the work of reaching out our hand to grab hold of them, to pull them to safety by introducing them to Jesus. Roger Woodward was swept over the falls. What do you do at that moment? Where there's no physical person left to help, Roger Woodward described his ride over the falls this way: "This way, he said I didn't really feel anything, and then all of a sudden it was like a great big hand caught me, and then I was let go into the water, and the maid of the mist pulled up and hoisted little seven-year-old Roger Woodward to safety." he would go forward from there asking this question, why me? Why me? What was was so important that I was spared certain death over the falls? And he really struggled with it for 20 years. In researching this sermon, I I wanted to know what happened to the boy who went over Niagara Falls and lived. I wanted to know what happened to him. And, And so I started to look into his story and and in, in, in 2010, he did an interview with a magazine in Arizona, and it was fascinating what he said at the conclusion. He said, I spent 20 years trying to figure out the answer to this question, why? Why? What had happened that day? Why was I allowed to live? What was so important? Why, why me and, and not Jim Honeycutt, who had given his life to protect me? Why was I the survivor? And then one day, he said, I understood. God saved me on July 9th, 1960, because he knew that at the age of 27, I would know Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He saved me so that I could be saved by Jesus. And, friends, I want you to hear this. He still saves today. Even when all other hands have failed us, His arm is mighty to save. If you feel desperate, you feel overwhelmed, helpless, there is still one who can help. And He is reaching out for you. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Would you let this be the day that you come to him like those lepers did? That you ask him to cure you of your spiritual sickness? To heal you and to make you whole? Not just to restore you to what you once were, but to recreate in you what God wants you to be. If you're ready to make such a decision, we make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation?